The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's word. A few moments of silent prayer. And uh, so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll start. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much that we can gather together today, that we have freedom in this country to do so that we still have the freedoms to worship, to teach the truth, even though many of the principles that we are teaching run counter to the opinions, to the majority opinions, and to the, to the directions that this country is going. Father, we pray that there would be uh, believers who would remain positive to your word, that through their influence, that this nation might be, uh, continue to be blessed and remain strong. And if we go under discipline, Father, we pray that as believers we might be a testimony and that we would be diligent to strengthen our own souls through the study of your word, that we might be prepared to stand fast in the day of trouble. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges. Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2 as we continue our study of how a nation becomes paganized. In other words, how, this, how the nation Israel went from being a nation dedicated to God, a generation where they were dominated mostly by believers who were positive to doctrine and obedient to doctrine, as exemplified by the tribe of Judah in the beginning of chapter 1, exemplified by Caleb, by Joshua, by the next generation, which was represented by a young warrior named Othniel, and they went from that position to one of degradation, degeneration, perversion, where they were compromising with the Canaanite culture all around them. Instead of having victory in battle, they were losing, and finally they were just settling down, compromising with those around them. Eventually, they were just not even defeating them, and they were having to retreat from positions previously held. It is an illustration, as it were, of the spiritual life of the believer in reversionism. But in a historical context, it gives us a look at what takes place in the deterioration of a nation. Israel started off from the moment they were at Mount Sinai when they were given the Mosaic Law. They had the greatest law code, the greatest system of freedom ever to exist in human history. They did not have a government as such as we are used to, where there's an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch, they simply had an executive branch that was God himself. God would rule through a bureaucracy that was known as the priesthood. Through the priesthood, then people would come before God, and then when there was a need for someone of a leadership stature to step in, God would raise up judges. And we saw that there were provisions for these men in Deuteronomy chapter 17. So God made provision for everything. And yet what we see is this nation that enters the land victoriously. The tremendous conquests of Jericho, Ai, 
other battles that they fought as they secured the major strongholds in the land and defeated the uh, Canaanites in Joshua's generation, that in the next generation they began to uh, lose. They began to compromise. Instead of carrying out the harem, which was the ban, called the ban or the total destruction or annihilation of the Canaanites, they decided that, well, maybe there's a better way, and they began to let them live, let the cattle live, let uh, the people live, and they began to live off of the prosperity of the pagans around them. Now, sometimes people might ask, well, why is it that God wanted the culture eradicated? Two reasons. One had to do with divine discipline on that culture itself because of their rank, carnality, immorality, perversion. God wanted the Canaanite culture removed from the face of the earth. Secondly, he wanted to um, protect the uh, believers in Israel from this influence. And third, he wanted to demonstrate, this is why God wanted them to kill all the cattle, the sheep, everything, is because God was going to demonstrate that man, that believers did not need to rely upon unbelievers for their sustenance or for their provision, that God's grace was sufficient for everything that Israel would need, and they would not need to borrow anything or, or rely upon anything that was produced by the Canaanite culture. So by way of review, we remember that at this time in Israel, that Israel had no king. Judges 21:25 is the key verse. There, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And that statement has sort of a double edge to it. It's not only a reference to the fact that the monarchy had not begun, but it indicates that the nation had rejected the authority of God. Now, this is a crucial factor in Judges. In fact, you're probably going to be tired of hearing this over the next several months as we go through Judges. And that is that if you don't get it together in terms of your own authority orientation, then you are going to be a failure in your marriage. You're going to be a failure as a parent. You're going to be a failure uh, as a citizen in the country. You're going to be a failure in your job. And most of all, you're going to be a failure as a believer. This is the fundamental issue. Authority is not something that God imposed on man simply because we're sinners. We have studied the doctrine of the Trinity and we have seen that in the triune relationship, what theologians call the economic function of the Trinity, there is an authority relationship. The Son is subordinate to the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, but they are internally, essentially equal. They have the same identical essence. There is nothing that makes the Father smarter, that makes the Father uh, uh, more skilled, that makes the Father more powerful than the Son or the Holy Spirit. They are equal in power. They are equal in knowledge. They are equal in ability. They are equal in every single factor. And yet, there is a distinction in their roles. And for any group to function, there must be role distinction. And that means that you have to identify what your role is in life and in whatever sphere it might be at the workplace, in the home, in the church, And you have to recognize who the authorities are that are set over you. And that does not mean that they are always going to be men or women of integrity. That they are always going to be people who perform the job better than you do. In fact, in many cases, you might be in positions where the person who is set in authority over you does not have near the intelligence that you have that is not even close to having the skills, education, or background that you have. And not only that, but they may be dumb as dirt, and yet they're still the person who's put in that position. They may even be making bad decisions, decisions you disagree with and decisions which you think are going to ultimately be harmful to the organization, whatever that organization may be, whether it's the the workplace, whether it's a football team, sports team, whether it is... uh, Uh, the family, the home, the marriage, whatever it might be, there's somebody in authority and the Scripture says that we are to obey the authority set over us and it never conditions that with a qualifier only when you agree with them, only when they are right, only when they are making wise decisions, only when they're believers, only when they are wise. It always says you have to respect authority because at the core issue, if you're not authority-oriented, then that is arrogance, and that is self-destructive in our own lives. And we see it played out historically 
during the time of the judges because they had rejected the authority of God. And when you reject the authority of God, something has to go into that vacuum of authority. And so they put themselves. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to see a very uh, damning indictment of the nation as we see the leaders digress from the very beginning. Othniel and his wife Oxo set up as sort of an ideal couple. By that I don't mean they're perfect, but they are set up by the writer as, in their generation, they represented the standard. They were they fulfilled their individual roles as husband and wife, as leader, as warrior, as a military leader, as judge, and everyone after them misses that mark. From generation to generation, from judge to judge, cycle to cycle, the men fall short of that warrior ideal, that leadership ideal set by Othniel until it deteriorates to Samson, who just has no control whatsoever over his own body, over his own soul, his own lusts, and he abuses and mistreats and uses women. And you see some horrible things in chapters 17 through 21 that take place in the nation. And so one of the consequences of paganism and perversion is role reversal of the sexes. It affects the home, it affects leadership, and it it impacts uh, many different areas. So by way of review, we've seen that Israel had no king. It was set up as a theocracy, and Judges is designed to show that man in his depravity will always tend towards rejecting God. That's the trend. And that there is a necessity for a human government. I don't mean a tyrannical government, but a strong human government and authority in order to restrain evil. There is, uh, it won't work to just have some passive sort of government. The theocracy did not work, not because it failed in terms of ultimate leadership, because that was God. It failed because the people had no capacity for freedom because they had lost the doctrine in their soul. Ran across a quote from someone no less than, than Rousseau, who obviously was not a believer, but he did have a bit of wisdom. He made the statement, we may acquire liberty, but it is never recovered if it is once lost. And we see that played out in the book of Judges. We'll see there are various social problems that take place. There's poverty, marital failure, racism, inequities, violence, all kinds of problems that we see in life are not the problems, they are merely the symptom of the problem. We see all these problems in the book of Judges, and the, the ultimate problem is a spiritual problem. So the solution is not a political solution, it's not an economic solution, it's not developing government programs, throwing money at it. If there is no internal change of the mental attitude and volition of the nation, then these things will just continue, continue to plague us and deteriorate us deteriorate over time. Israel had the most ideal government in all of history, the highest degree of freedom that ever existed, and yet they gave it up. They willingly relinquished their freedom because they rejected the authority of God. Now, as we look at Judges, we saw that it's divided into three sections. The first section is the introduction, which sets the themes of the book from 1-1 to 3-6. The main body of the book is from 37 to 1631, which covers the various cycles of the judges. And then the last, uh, seven, last chapter, 17 through 21, provides a, uh, two episodes, an epilogue, that describes how horrible it was on the, at the level of the everyday person during this time. During the, in the introduction from 1-1 to 3-6, there is the introduction to the what has taken place, the transition from the period of conquest under Joshua and the resulting decline and compromise of the subsequent generation. And, and it introduces us to the basic cycles of deliverance. It is a summary overview of what takes place from 37 to 1631 where we see the breakdown of the leadership of the nation. The leaders always represent the same values as the core culture. And this is typical, we see it even today, that the leaders we have, we justly deserve because they reflect who we are as a nation for the, in the most part. And then 1721, we see the breakdown of the spirituality of the people. 
Now, in Judges 1, which I covered last time, we saw three basic antidotes that were covered by the writer. He wants us to pay attention to certain things and not to miss these things. So he, in the course of basically rehearsing the military conquest of the land, he introduces three vignettes, three little stories that illustrate theological principles and spiritual things that are taking place at the time. We saw that as the tribes moved out, that, that first there's a start with judges in the, I mean, with uh, the tribe of Judah in the south. And uh, looking over at Judges 1, we see that the first anecdote, the first vignette, is, has to do with the battle of Bezek and the case of the missing thumbs and toes. As the uh, tribe of Judah conquered um, or defeated the city of Bezek and the lord of Bezek called Adonai Bezek, after they captured him alive, they cut off his thumbs and toes. Now, what was important about that is that this is the formal adoption by Judah. It's just a small thing, but ultimate defeat begins with small compromises. And instead of destroying uh, and, and annihilating and killing all of the Canaanites, they uh, let some of them live and they thought, well, we'll just disarm them. And so they uh, disarmed him by cutting off his thumbs and toes. That's just a military, typical Canaanite, cruel and unusual punishment. Once a warrior had his thumbs and toes cut off, he was incapacitated as a warrior. He couldn't hold a sword, couldn't hold a spear, couldn't run fast anymore. Uh, you, your big toe is necessary to maintain balance and speed, and, and that would be gone. So this was a way of, of um, taking away the military capability of a defeated enemy. Then we move from that to the next episode, which has to do with Caleb and his family in the taking of Debir, starting down in verse 12. Caleb said, The one who attacks Kiriath Sefer, which is the former name of Debir, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will even give him my daughter Aksa for a wife. And so Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So he gave him his daughter, Aksa, for a wife. Now, Aksa and Othniel, we'll come back to them time and time again as we establish principles and a model for the relationship of a husband and a wife and men and women in a culture. And it sets the standard that the, the, the man is the warrior. He's the victorious warrior. Everything that is told us in Scripture about Othniel is positive. There's nothing negative about him. He's willing to trust God. He goes into battle. He doesn't seek compromise. He, he takes the initiative. He's aggressive. He's everything that he should be. Oxa, too, is everything she should be. She does not react against her father's authority, whether uh, that he is giving her as a wife to whoever gains victory over Kiriath Safer. She is submissive to him. She honors him. We're told in verse 14 that when she comes to him to ask him for something more than her dowry, her dowry was the Negev, which was given to uh, Othniel, but the Negev is in the south. It's desert land. There's very little water there. She wanted something more, so she came to ask for an additional blessing. The end of 14, she alights from her donkey. This is a sign of respect. She doesn't stay up on on the donkey and uh, talk to her father from that position, but she shows respect, she shows deference, she asks a request, she shows all of the qualities of, of honor that she should. She understands her authority position. She is not setting herself up in an authority position. She understands what's best for the family, and so she goes to the uh, goes to her father and he, she wants a blessing so that once they have control of the springs, then this will provide water for future generations. Now, what is going to happen over the course of time and the period of the judges is that we're going to see a collapse of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the leader as the male and women having to become masculine and take on masculine roles to step into the vacuum. And this is typical of a pagan culture. In fact, it, I remember from my studies... Brief though they were in sociology in college years ago, it seems that almost all matriarchal societies were in primitive cultures. Uh, 
and in cultures that were dominated by some sort of animism, spiritism, some sort of, of a pagan religion. And so the more you deteriorate into human viewpoint thinking, the more you see a breakdown in the distinction of roles between men and women, and the more you, you lose the concept of equality but distinctiveness, and the more you have marital breakdown. This is just an outworking of the curse. We've studied how in the curse that uh, God said that the... And, and what a curse means is not that God is saying, okay, now this is going to be um, your problem and I'm going to cause this to be your problem. What God is saying is now that sin has entered into your experience as the human race, this is the consequence. I'm going to spell it out for you. Uh, he, God is not making men be a certain way, women be a certain way. That's not the, the concept in a curse. The concept in the curse is these are the negative consequences that are a result of spiritual failure. And it is going to affect every realm of nature, every realm of the creation differently. It's going to affect the animal kingdom one way. It's going to affect women specifically in relationship to their original created order. They were created to be helpers to the man in achieving the God-given goal. They, In one sense, they're a team, but in that team, as in any team, there's somebody in authority and somebody who's not. And the, that's why I always emphasize in marriage ceremonies that it is important for the wife to be willing to submit herself to her husband and to adapt herself to his leadership, whatever it may be. The woman always has to be more flexible than the man. Just take a look at what you have to do on the dance floor. The woman has to do everything the man does, but backwards, and she has to respond instantaneously to whatever his moves are. On the other hand, the man has to make sure that he's able to lead in such a manner as to not overpower her, but also to give her clear signals as to where she is supposed to be going. So I think there's a lot of analogies between, a, between dancing and a marriage. But as soon as the woman tries to act like the man and lead, and I've certainly experienced that time or two, you get out on the dance floor with some... It never failed. Every time I got on the dan- I'd get on the dance floor with some woman. I used to take... I spent several years taking uh, country western dancing as an exercise hobby. It was a lot of fun. Every day we would had a great group, a great class, and we would all meet down at some place and get on the dance floor and dance for about an hour and a half and Never had any trouble with exercise. It was a lot of fun. But uh, you could always tell when you got in the class with uh, somebody who was, uh, some woman who was a feminist, because they always tried to back lead every time. You always had trouble. And every time you get out on the floor with someone who was, with a woman who was back leading, sooner or later I would discover that they tended to have strong feminist leadings. But this is what's happening in our culture, and I was just perusing the internet the other day. And I like to read Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is a very erudite, intelligent, social commentator. And in the June 15th, year 2000 issue of the Jewish World Review, he wrote the following editorial. The old saying, boys will be boys, has long since become obsolete in schools across the length and breadth of this country. He's talking about the U.S., Unknown to most parents, there are federally financed programs to prevent boys from acting the way boys have always acted before. Now pay attention to this, because social engineering of our culture is designed to reverse the roles so that what's happening when you send your kids to school, if indeed you are teaching them the proper biblical uh, roles at home, that is being undermined at school perhaps. Unknown to most parents, there are federally financed programs to prevent boys from acting the way boys have always acted before. The things done by those who have taken on the role of changing boys range from forbidding them from running and jumping during recess to having them wear dresses and pretend to be girls or women in the classroom. Whatever the particular mix of things done at a particular school, it is accompanied by a barrage of propaganda prepared by radical feminists for nationwide distribution with the blessing and the money, that is, your taxpayer dollars, with the blessing and the money of the U.S. Department of Education. The people who are doing this see their role as changing your children into the kinds of people they want them to be, not the kind of people you want them to be. Parents who somehow learn what is going on in school and object 
are told that studies prove, that's in quotes, studies prove that this is the right thing to do, that, quote, specialists and, quote, experts know more about this than parents can possibly know. A newly published book titled The War Against Boys by Christina Hoff Summers not only reveals what these brainwashing programs are doing, it shows that the so-called studies on which these programs are based are either hopelessly inadequate or just plain non-existent. Christina Hoff Summers is a scholar at the Manhattan Institute, and she not only sees through the fraudulent claims of the radical feminists, she is familiar with real studies, both here and overseas, which show the direct opposite of what the brainwashers claim. The people who are promoting the anti-male agenda are experts at nothing except manipulating the media and snowing gullible educators who are more interested in puffing themselves up as, quote, agents of social change than in teaching children. Boys in elementary school or even kindergarten have been punished for being politically incorrect toward girls. One nine-year-old boy who reached for a piece of fruit in a school lunch line and accidentally brushed against a girl was arrested, handcuffed, and fingerprinted for sexual harassment, even though the charges later had to be dropped. A boy of three, three, was punished in school for hugging another child. The feminist dogma is that such things are precursors of wife-beating, rape, and other crimes of men against women, and so must be nipped in the bud. According to these propagandists, four million American women are beaten to death by men every year. That is four times as many American women as die from all causes put together. The actual number of women killed by men is less than 1% of what was claimed. However, inaccurate and irresponsible the propaganda, it is very effective in creating the kind of paranoia that gets brainwashing programs and draconian punishment of boys into the schools. Staggering as it is to realize that schools are using materials and creating rules based on sheer dogma and outright lies, the tragic fact is that such tactics have been common in totalitarian countries throughout this century. What is uncommon is their pervasiveness in America over the past generation. So he goes on and indicates, substantiates the fact that we live in a culture where certain ideological power bases have their strong militant agenda to reverse the roles of men and women and to make men and women virtually interchangeable in society. Now, this is just one concept of, of, uh, of worldly thinking. Remember, worldly thinking in the Bible, worldliness is not what you do, it's how you think. And it's constantly... We are constantly, as believers, living in this culture under the barrage of ideas like this. They come in very subtle forms, that come in very attractive forms, and we hear them over and over and over again, and that is the standard procedure of brainwashing, propaganda, and the public lie, is if you say something long enough, loud enough, that eventually people will believe it, despite all evidence to the contrary. And what is happening more and more in churches in, among Christians is that you have the rise since the mid-70s of what was called uh, the Christian, the evangelical feminist movement and the whole approach, the whole issue of uh, putting women in positions that the Bible never authorized, such as in the pulpit. And this is happening more and more. There's been a lot of discussion on the media because nobody can understand why the Southern Baptists this year made it an issue at their convention to uh, add a statement prohibiting women pastors in the Southern Baptist Convention. They just can't understand that this is what the Bible says because they want to approach these things from the relativist position of human viewpoint. And so you get people on Larry King and on uh, various other talk shows bringing in a couple of uh, Southern Baptists and trying to make them look backward, look regressive, look like some kind of backward snake-handling fundamentalist just because they don't want to put uh, a woman in the pulpit. And it's because they operate on pure human viewpoint thinking. And we have to understand as believers that we're involved in a warfare no different from the warfare the Jews were involved in, in the, um, in the book of Judges. And if we succumb to this kind of thinking, and you, unless you are aggressively pursuing a policy in your own mind to identify and weed out this type of thinking, then you will succumb to it.
Because if you are passive, if you are not aggressive, if you are not trying to, to militantly take control of what goes on between your ears, then you will lose the battle. And this is exactly what is exemplified in the first chapter of Judges. So the first vignette we looked at dealt with the influence of pagan thinking in terms of punishment and the foreshadowing of compromise there, the actual compromise, and that foreshadows greater compromise in Judah, the uh, ideal relationship presented by Othniel and Aksa, and then we come to the third episode we saw last time that when the tribe of Joseph went up against Bethel, that the Lord was with them. Now, the point that comes through time and again in the first chapter is how God is gracious even when the Jews are failures. And one of the things we will note throughout this book is that God continues to deal with Israel on the basis of His covenant as a gracious God despite Israel's failure. As I was reading through this again this last week, the thought kept coming to me, how is it that the liberal theologians and the people we interchange with all the time who say, well, how can you believe in an Old Testament God who is so judgmental? The Old Testament God is a God of judgment and condemnation, but the New Testament God is a God of love, and they always come out with this kind of bilious, ignorant nonsense. And yet you read a book like Judges, and although God clearly disciplines the nation, and sometimes it's harsh, what you see over and over again is how God extends His grace to Israel. Even when they don't repent and come back to Him, God continues to deliver them. God continues to provide deliverance again and again and again. They take advantage of God over and over and over again, and yet God continues to deal with them in loving kindness and in grace, and He never stops. This is not a God of harsh judgment. He doesn't follow some mechanistic interpretation of the blessings and curses motif uh, back in uh, Deuteronomy 29 and 30 and in Leviticus chapter 26, the five cycles of discipline. They clearly get disciplined, but God, God would be completely within His rights to have removed the nation from the land by the end of this 300, 200, 300, 350-year period because of their complete and total failure. And as you read through the book of Judges, it would be if we didn't have Samuel and Kings and the New Testament, we might think that this nation is completely made up of failures and losers and people who are spiritually rebellious and there's no hope for this nation. And yet the glory days of David and Solomon are yet future to this time. This, is, this shows the continuous grace of God in our lives that no matter how much we fail, no matter what you've done, no matter how destructive it may, may have been, no matter whether you find yourself in prison, if you find yourself totally uh, bankrupt and out on the streets living under a bridge, if you're still alive, God is still gracious and God still has a plan for your life and it's never too late and God has given us a grace recovery principle in 1 John 1, 9, to confess our sins and we're forgiven and we can begin to move forward. And the key issue is to get back to doctrine and to let doctrine completely permeate our soul. So this is the lesson of the first chapter, that Israel has compromised and the more they compromise, the less they're able to have any, any kind of victory militarily until they're left with simply coexisting with the Canaanites, and that is a perfect illustration of what happens in the lives of most believers because they start compromising with human viewpoint thinking at what seems to be innocuous levels, subtle levels, small levels. It's not really going to make a difference if I do this or think like that or whatever. You really don't think it has an impact on your spiritual life, and this does. It has a cumulative effect until eventually you're you're letting in your soul coexist ideas of human viewpoint and divine viewpoint and you're just complacent and eventually you wonder why doesn't doctrine work? The reason doctrine doesn't work is because you are basically negative and you've given up and you're no longer fully, radically, militantly trusting Christ. Now when I talk about this, these battle metaphors going through judges, 
I don't want anyone to make the mistake of thinking that I am applying the judge's military motif of going out and conquering a culture with what Christians are to do. I'm not making that analogy. We are not called upon to go out and change our culture. This is not a call for crusaderism to go out and march on Washington or march on the state government in Hartford. Now, that may be what you want to do as, as part of your responsibilities as a citizen getting involved in politics, but please don't ever, you get involved in any political issue, don't ever say, well, I'm doing this because I'm a Christian. That is one of the worst things you can ever say because now you've made a political position. You've identified a political position with Christianity and you've made that the issue rather than Christ. And that is the problem that has been generated by the, by the uh, Christian, so-called Christian right and the Christian political movements over the last uh, 20, uh, 20 plus years. I remember when all that got started. Some of you are old enough to remember, some of you aren't. But all of that really started in the late 70s as a result of two uh, media campaigns that were conducted across this country by Francis Schaeffer. He had a series that was excellent. One day maybe we'll get a chance to uh, view it as a church because there are many good things about it called How Should We Then Live? And it was an analysis of, of, of history, of Western civilization and the impact of pagan thought on Western civilization. But when Schaefer came to the end of that period and he looked at where we were today, he began to operate on a little crusader arrogance, I think, and he began to be very concerned about what was taking place in the West, especially in regard to abortion. So he went back to his home in Switzerland, put together another book and another movie series called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And this was basically a, a crusade against abortion, infanticide, and euthanasia, put together an extremely slick video film uh, presentation and took it to about eight cities around the country. And I remember sitting at the uh, Moody Auditorium on the SMU campus with Tommy Ice and Charlie Clough when Schaefer came to Dallas. And we were sitting third row back, and the whole Schaefer clan, there must have been 40 of them, were sitting right in front of us. And we watched that whole film series, and it basically ended with a call to action. And it was an action to, to organize as Christians to go on a great crusade against uh, abortion and against the um, whole free choice movement. And so out of that came the uh, Christian right, the um, moral majority, Jerry Falwell's organization. And all that was produced because of that militancy. Now, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about is that between your ears, there are thousands of ideas, opinions, and concepts which you dearly hold. I'm the same way. I'm not any different from you. I'm just as much a product of my culture as you are of the same culture. Between our ears, we have thousands of dearly held ideas, opinions, and thoughts that are contrary to Scripture. But we like them. They're attractive. They make life work for us. They're enjoyable. Some of them involve sin. Some of them just involve political ideas or cultural ideas or how to best make a marriage work or how we ought to raise our children or any other factor. And we have to take a militant position against every single idea inside our head. And we have to go to battle just as the Jews went to battle against the paganism of the Canaanites. Because if you don't deal with the paganism that's between your ears, you will ultimately experience defeat in your Christian life. Because the Christian life is a battle of thinking, it's a battle of ideas, and it is based on doctrine. And our job as believers is to have our thinking completely renovated by the Word of God. And that can't happen by showing up once a week or even twice a week. Uh, it's interesting. I've had feedback from several people over the last six months about how... Uh, in fact, one friend of mine called me up and said, Robbie, you don't need to teach any more Bible classes. I'm listening to all of your tapes three or four times each, and I'm still not getting everything out of them. So, so just... Um, uh, don't do any more. Just keep it going. So um, <clears throat> I guess that's my idea. I try to pack everything I can in here, and you can go back and listen to them, get tapes. That's why we don't charge for tapes. You need to hear the truth again and again and again and again and let it wash through your soul. And eventually, and it's true for all of us, we're all slow. If you look at Scripture, you wonder how God could ever use somebody who's as 
as timid, as frightened, as scared, as apparently ignorant as Gideon was, and yet he did. And we're not a whole lot better than Gideon or Jephthah or any other of the men or women in Judges. So the issue is that we need doctrine over and over and over again until these principles finally break through, knocking on the stubbornness of our rebellious heart so that we finally realize, oh, that's what that's talking about. I've really believed just the opposite all these years and I need to make a change. It's amazing how many people I see sit in Bible class year after year after year and whatever is being taught is aimed right at them, not intentionally, but it just is directed right at their life because that's the issue. And the whole time they're sitting there thinking, you know, I wish so-and-so were here to hear that. And they never get the point that, oh, that means me. You see, one time I, I was sitting with a friend in Bible class, and I happened to look over at the way they were taking notes, and I noticed that, that when, when they wrote down the principles, they wrote them down in the first person. I thought, well, that's a great way to make it personal. This is what I need to be doing. So that was just one suggestion you might think about. Well, as we get into, we have gone through Judges 1 last time. We've seen this decline, and now we come to chapter 2. In the Chapter 2 gives us the divine interpretation of the failures of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is basically a record of what happened. And now in chapter 2, we're going to see the divine viewpoint interpretation. Why did they fail? What were the underlying causes? It wasn't because they were militarily inefficient. It wasn't because Judah did not possess chariots or iron. That's not why they couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the valley. In verse 19, that's what they blamed it on. Well, we just don't have the latest technology. The issue isn't the latest technology. The issue was spiritual. The God who gave them victory at Jericho is the same God who could drive out the Philistines in the lowlands despite the fact that they had iron and despite the fact that they had chariots. The issue was trusting God. The issue was not technological or military skill. God never asks us to do more than His grace provides. Sometimes you might take a look at what the Scripture claims and expects of you and say, well, I just can't do that. I can't seem to have victory over this sin in my life. I can't deal with it. I'm constantly plagued with anger or bitterness or mental attitude sins or lust or overt sins or whatever it might be in your case. But remember the principle. God never expects us to do more than His grace has provided And His grace has provided us everything. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how abusive your home was. It doesn't matter how horrible some circumstances might have been in your life or what somebody may have done to you over and over and over again as you were a child. It doesn't matter how screwed up your training was. It doesn't matter how... The, the fact that you might have been brought up in some home that hate, where everybody hated God or had some other religious position that was horrible and distorted. It doesn't matter what your background is. Once you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God promises, God has gi- promised us that He has given us absolutely everything we need to overcome any deficit in our life. The issue is simple. Are we willing to trust God? to learn the Scriptures, to operate fully and exclusively on the Word of God, or are we constantly going to be compromising it and trying to do God's work our way or do our our work God's way, one or the other? Everybody has to deal with the fact that we have our own personal agendas and God has to come first. He has to be the priority and we have to learn. That's the whole process of the spiritual life. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not the result of some sort of emotional excitement, some uh, revival campaign where everybody's asked to walk the aisle, raise their hand, uh, make some vow to Jesus. That's not how it happens. There's no one-shot decision. It is a thousand decisions, a thousand decisions that you and I make day in and day out. Well, Israel made the wrong decisions, and this is the the judgment. The first five verses give us the in the divine viewpoint interpretation of their failures from the vantage point of the angel of the Lord. Judges 
through 5 is the angel of the Lord's interpretation, and we have to identify the angel of the Lord in verse 1a. Now, the angel of the Lord, literally the angel of Yahweh, came up from Gilgal. Who is the angel of the Lord? In the Hebrew, this is Malach Yahweh. Malach is the Hebrew word for angel, and I prefer, because we have such screwed up ideas of angels. Just turn on TV sometime and watch one of these shows, and angels are these very soft, sentimental, fuzzy winged, whatever it might be, creatures. And what we have in the scripture is not that concept. You look at when angels do reveal themselves, they uh, certainly don't seem to fit the uh, sort of the Renaissance artwork of an angel. This is the Malaach. A Malaach is a messenger, an envoy. This is a representative from the high court of God, the Malaach Yahweh. So who is this creature? Well, I want you to hold your place here. We're going to go back and forth a couple of times. But I want you to hold your place here and go to Exodus chapter 23. Now, to understand what happens in Judges 2, 1 through 5 you have to understand the backdrop of what happens in Exodus chapter 23. That's why we will be going back and forth between these two chapters. Exodus chapter 23 is God's preparation of the nation for the conquest. And this is his provision for Israel. And if we look at verse 20, he says, Behold, I am going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place where I have, which I have prepared, of course, land, which I have prepared. Be on your guard before him and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression since my name is in him. Now, I want to direct your attention particularly to that last phrase. He says of this angel, this Malaach, this messenger, the envoy that he is sending to lead and direct Israel, he gives him a, he, uh, gives him identical authority to himself, and he says, "My name is in him." Now, in we have studied several times that in Semitic idiom, the concept of name relates to the essence or character of someone or a thing. So here God is saying that his essence is in the messenger. Literally, this is the Hebrew word, bakher bo, which means in his midst. My character is inside him. Now I want you to notice, for those of you who have been here second hour as well and following our exposition of the high priestly prayer in John 17, that this is carried out a little more in John 17. Look at what Jesus says. To understand the full impact of what Jesus says in John 17, 6 and 12 in his high priestly prayer, it goes all the way back to our background here in Exodus chapter 23. Jesus says in John 17, 6, I manifested Thy name. This was Jesus' role as the second person of the Trinity incarnate. Is to He is the one who expresses who God is. We'll see in a minute that there are various passages that indicate that no one has ever seen God at any time. The only member of the Trinity that has ever been seen is Jesus Christ, either in His pre-incarnate state in the Old Testament or incarnate in the New Testament. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. And then in John 17:12, Jesus said, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me. So there is an identification here between Jesus and his statement that I have your name, and the fact that the angel, the envoy of God, in Exodus 23:21, God says, My name is in him. Other scriptures that we come to in the Old Testament indicate that the angel of Yahweh is equated to Yahweh himself. Genesis 16, 7 through 13, we have Hagar, the angel of Yahweh, appearing to Hagar. And Hagar shifts terminology. 
at one point addressing the angel as the angel, at another point addressing the angel directly as Yahweh, and also bowing down and worshiping the angel. Now, everywhere else in Scripture, when man tries to worship an angel, the angel rejects the worship and says, don't worship me. But the angel of Yahweh never rejects the worship of man. And Gideon himself builds an altar to the angel of Yahweh and calls the angel of Yahweh says, I have seen Yahweh himself. So there is this equation of the angel to Yahweh himself in Genesis 16 and in Judges 6 and various other passages in the Old Testament. Furthermore, in Judges 13:18, when the angel of the Lord, the Malaach Yahweh, appears to the father of Samson, the father asks, what is your name? And the angel replies, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? And here we have the Hebrew word pala, pele here in the um, noun form, pele. And this is the same word we find over in Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called what? Wonderful. Pele. So the name of, one of the names of the angel of Yahweh is Wonderful. And this is the name of the second person of the Trinity incarnate, Jesus Christ, that he is called Wonderful. So there is this identification of Jesus Christ with the angel of Yahweh, this identification of the angel of Yahweh to Yahweh himself. And then furthermore, in passages such as uh, Zechariah 1, 12 and 13, we find a conversation between the angel of Yahweh and Yahweh himself. So on the one hand, there are passages that identify them, see them as the same person. In other passages, they are distinct. One converses with the other. Third, that we've seen the identification of various attributes of the Malaach Yahweh with the second person of the Trinity. And our conclusion is that the angel of Jehovah, the angel of Yahweh in the Old Testament, is God the Son pre-incarnate. This is his pre-incarnate manifestation. John 1.18 tells us that no one has seen the Father at any time, the only begotten one. He has revealed him to us. So the person who appears here in Judges 2, keep your place there in Exodus 23. We'll return there momentarily. Go back to Judges 2. Judges 2, the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bohem. Now, Gilgal was located about halfway between the Jordan River and Jericho. It was where the army of the people camped when they crossed the Jordan the first night in the land. They camped at Gilgal, according to Joshua 4.19, on the eastern edge of Jericho. And they set up a monument there, a memorial of twelve stones. They constantly did this sort of thing. And the reason is that that God does not do miracles in every generation. God did a miracle in crossing the, uh, crossing the Jordan, and so they set up a monument there of 12 stones so that when their grandchildren, great-grandchildren came along and saw those 12 stones, they would say, well, what's that for? And then they would recount what God had done in, as an act in, in history. So they established 12 stones, which they had taken up from the Jordan, and they set them up at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal becomes Joshua's command and control center. Throughout the book of of, uh, Joshua, it is to Gilgal that the army always returns. Now, the commander-in-chief the commander that is set up over the army is the angel of Yahweh, and he directs all the actions of the army of Israel from the command and control center in Gilgal. So, the movement from Gilgal to Bohem, and we don't know where that was located... The movement from Gilgal indicates the cessation of holy war. The cessation of holy war because he's left the angel, the commander-in-chief of the armies of Yahweh, has left the command and control center, and that's essentially what he's going to announce is the end of holy war. And there will not be holy war again in human history until Jesus Christ returns at the second advent at the battle of Armageddon. So this is the end of holy war in history. 
during that time, it was the believer's primary responsibility not only to kill the enemy, but to annihilate the enemy, man, woman, and child. And that tells us that there are times in warfare when it is legitimate to kill non-combatants. I'm not going to go into the ethics of that or when that is, but we, in Western modern America, we want to assume that it's always wrong to do that. Well, the Scriptures indicate, no, it's not always wrong to do that. There are times when it is justified and it should be part of warfare. The angel of the Lord moves from Gilgal to Bochim and then announces a judgment on the nation. From 1b down through 3, we have this formal condemnation. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And as for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. Now, what happened? What did we see? Back with the episode at Bethel, verse 24, the spies, they sent out spies again when uh, the tribe of Joseph came to uh, do battle against Bethel, which was formerly called Luz. The spies, this is in 124, the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city and we will treat you kindly. Now in the Hebrew it says, we will treat you with chesed. That's C-H-E-S-E-D in the Hebrew, chesed. And chesed is translated and has the significance of God's faithful love to his covenant. So when chesed is handled here, what this refers to is that they're establishing a covenant with the inhabitants of Bethel. This is in violation of God's direct commandment given in Exodus 23:20 20 and following. As for you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land, but they had done this, but you have not obeyed me. What is this you have done? Therefore I also said, I will not drive out before you, Drive them out before you, but they shall become as thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. Now, I want you to notice here that God announces, the angel announces, that because of their failure, because of their compromise, they're never going to truly experience the kind of victory that God had given them. That means they, this is a tribute to missed opportunity in the Christian life. This happens to us all the time. Anytime we fail to trust God, in certain situations, we're going to miss out on blessings that God had intended to give us, but will be held on reserve and never distributed to us. These are contingent blessings in time, and they may affect our eventual rewards and inheritance in heaven. Now, I want you to notice some vocabulary here. The uh, word that is used here to drive out is the Hebrew word garash, which means to drive out, to expel, to defeat, to remove, to annihilate. And God says that I will not drive them out before you. Now hold your place here. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and following. We're told, we've read 20 and 21, that the angel, the Malach Yahweh, would go before them. And here are the consequences that are announced in verse 22. But if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For my angel, my envoy, will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods. Notice there's no compromise here. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them nor do according to their deeds, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillar pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your land. There will be no miscarriage, and goes on to outline a number of the blessings that, that were there. Now, it doesn't use it in the English, but in the, in the Hebrew of verse 23, My angel will go before you and bring you into the land, and I will completely destroy them, annihilate them, and then we come down and we see in verse uh, 28, uh, I will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the, the uh, Hittites before you. Verse 29, I will not drive them out, Garash, again, before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate. In other words, it's a progressive thing, just like the spiritual life. God's not going to give us complete victory. This is in complete contrast to the whole Pentecostal holiness idea 
that there's some sort of second work of grace after salvation and I'm going to have some experience and then never have problems again in the Christian life and that if you do, you weren't really saved or you don't have the second blessing or whatever. That's what the analogy is. God does not give us victory over everything instantaneously with salvation or some second work of grace. It is a progress. Verse 30, I will drive them out before you. That's Garash again. So four times in 23 we have Garash mentioned and it's mentioned one time again in uh, Exodus chapter uh, 32, 34 and following, which is an expansion on this same concept in Exodus 23 and is the background for understanding what is taking place. Now, God has given them a covenant, and it is called the land covenant or real estate covenant, and it is an expansion of the... Of the um, it's an expansion of the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham. He said, I will give you land, I will give you a descendant, a seed, and I will give you a blessing. I will make you a blessing for all the nations. Those are the three provisions which are later expanded in the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Now, the land covenant has been historically called the Palestinian covenant, which is a poor name. The designation of the land of Israel as Palestine was first made by the Roman Emperor Hadrian after the second Jewish revolt under Bar Kokhba in A.D. 132. Now, the Palestine comes from its etymological background is Palestine, which is the name of the Philistines. It was never the land of the Philistines. It's the land of Israel. So, we should never refer to it as Palestinian. So, I don't. I call it the land covenant. The key scripture is given in Deuteronomy 29 through 30. And this is a provision which basically says that, um, that God will uh, uh, bless the nation and God will provide a number of blessings for them if they are obedient. But he announces in that section, in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, that the nation would be rebellious that God would take them out of the land and scatter them among all the nations, but He would eventually restore them to the land and there would be regeneration in Israel, national regeneration, national restoration. They would have blessing and prosperity. They would, their borders would extend to the original borders as promised to Abraham and they would fully occupy the, the land. So, back to Judges chapter 2. The angel announces... That there will, that he will cease this and he will not give them complete victory over the Canaanites. The point of this is that since God had originally promised to give them the land, and here he says, I will not give you the land, I'm not going to completely drive out the, the enemy, the pagans, while you're there. We know that this God's promise, he does not go back on his word, will eventually be fulfilled in a literal manner. This is why we believe, one of the reasons we believe, in a literal millennium. And that God still has a future for Israel. is because He has made literal promises to Israel which have never been fulfilled in human history. So in verses 1b down through 3, the angel announces the consequences of the disobedience of Israel. And listen to their response in verse 4 and 5 came about when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the sons of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Baha, that's the Hebrew word Baha. You have a play on words here. So they named that place Bochim, which means the place of weeping. And there they sacrificed to the Lord and everybody folded their hands and said amen and wasn't it good to have been here today and we all went home and had revival. But what we see here is what happens in every revival. It's pure emotionalism. Because if you read the text, Nothing happens. There's no true repentance, which means change of mind resulting in change of behavior. There is no change. It's just an emotional response because they don't like the consequences. That's what happens with most people when they get caught, is they cry and they weep and they wail because, and you parents need to learn that that's what your kids are going to do, and you need to not let them pull the wool over your eyes. They're not upset they did what they did. They're upset they got caught. And that's the, pro- that's the way most of us are, is we express remorse and not repentance. And remorse is emotionalism, and it doesn't last. And it doesn't last there, and that's why churches need to uh, assiduously avoid emotionalism. 
because it gives people false hope. And as soon as they start basing their Christian life on their emotions, the next thing you know, they're going to be in absolute failure in the spiritual life. And that's what happens with Israel. So they end up getting uh, divine discipline and the uh, condemnation of God in the first three verses. And the result is a lot of weeping and wailing. There's a lot of noise, but there's no action. And they all go home. They sacrifice to the Lord, but it really doesn't mean anything. And they go home. Now, starting in verse 6, we're going to see the pro- a further expansion of the interpretation of verse 1 from the viewpoint of the prophet. So we have the angel's viewpoint and his condemnation in 1 through 3 and the people's emotional response. And then in verse 6, we're going to come back and get another viewpoint from the prophet, the writer of ju- Judges, and outlining what will take place throughout the rest of the book. And we will begin that next. Sunday morning, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together, that you have uh, given us such a tremendous uh, book as judges to challenge us with the human viewpoint and pagan ideas in our own thinking, that we might see the consequences. We might be challenged to weed out and remove all of the human viewpoint thinking that still resides in our own souls, that we have been challenged to tear down the strongholds the fortresses of our, of our ideas or false ideas in our soul, taking every thought captive for Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who is unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal life, that now they would take the opportunity to avail themselves of that. All that is necessary is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's not a matter of church attendance. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of any other human factor, simply faith alone in Christ alone, because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins in full. And so, he who knew, because he who knew no sin was made sin for us, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, Father, we pray that for the believers here that we would be challenged by these doctrines. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.